Hi, this is Jackie. If you haven't already listened to the previous episode, you may want to go back and hear Melissa's story from the beginning. You'll be able to follow if you start from here, but you'll get more out of it by knowing the backstory. In short, Melissa is a former meth user who abandoned her son at the height of her addiction. When we left off, she had just gotten out of Serenity Lane's inpatient program. Her son was in the custody of his dad, and she was heading into uncharted territory, an Oxford house. When I finished Excel, I moved into an Oxford house, a house of 14 women and four kids, and I was really awful at it at first. And by that, I mean, I, I, I'm defiant by nature. A lot of the concepts of the rules in the house were super foreign when I moved in there. I did not know how to live my life. It was terrifying. And I remember interviewing and being terrified and really not liking women that much, not trusting women. There were boundaries that had been set up for me prior to leaving treatment that I was not willing to follow. And so I went through a really rough time at the beginning of my being in that house. This week, we're diving into what life in an Oxford house is actually like. Melissa talked about this in her individual interview, which we'll return to throughout this episode. But to get the full picture, we talked with Melissa and three of the women who lived with her to see what they remembered. This is also the fourth and final episode featuring people we met at ASIPA, the Oregon State Young People in AA Conference. I'm your host, Jackie Danziger, and this is Voices of Recovery. Oxford houses are democratically run, self-supporting, and drug-free homes. There are houses for men, houses for women, and houses which accept women with children, which was the case for Autzen House, where Melissa lived after treatment. Life in these houses is tight. Space is limited. Privacy is at a premium. So it just made sense that for this interview, we would cram them into a tight hotel room, make them sit awkwardly on my bed, and share stories slumber party style. Looking back on it now, like, I had no idea what kind of experience I was going to have there, you know? I mean, I look back on that time, and, and it Oxford really did save my life. It gave me a safe space between treatment and the real world to be able to have accountability and really, like, figure some shit out. This is Madison. She's the youngest of the group, but you wouldn't know that since she's wise beyond her years and is incredibly self-aware. Here she is with Melissa. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know how to be a person. I didn't know how to do anything. You know, like I knew how to get loaded. (laughs) I didn't know how to pay my bills. I didn't know how to start a dishwasher. Mm. I didn't know how to like, I just didn't know basic human decencies. Oh, our dishwasher. Oh my God. Remember when that, who was it that posted it on Facebook and tagged everybody in it and was like, (laughs) what is this about? (laughs) The last woman you heard there was Brie. She's kind of the fun one in a group of fun ladies. This was an enjoyable interview, partially because nobody's beating around the bush. The final member of this fearless foursome is Sam, who looks tough because she is tough. I met Madison in treatment, and um, we went to XL, and we hated each other. (laughs) Um, No, I listened to punk rock, and she hated punk rock, and... um, she left treatment twice and I tried to stop her and she kept leaving. <laughs> and then we moved into the same Oxford house and it's 
we had a very love hate relationship for a really long time. Yeah, we did. <laughs> we did. <laughs> Mostly love now. Mostly love. What? When did that shift? When we started, I don't know. It was just oh, we both changed a lot. Yeah. In our sobriety, we were both. Like in our house meetings in Oxford, and both these girls can attest to that because we yeah. all live together. Um, we're both very stubborn and we're both very loud, um, and we both have really strong opinions about things. So we butted heads a lot. Often in our show, we'll zoom out and underline big picture themes. We'll still do that, but these women do a lot of the work for us. So I'm leaving the audio largely intact so you can get a sense of what our conversation was like in the room. I think there was always a lot of love there, mm-hmm. down deep down though. Even though we all hated some each other sometimes, there was definitely like more love than hate for sure. Yeah, at all times. So is that like part of just being a young person in AA? Like I feel like all women between eighteen and twenty three love hate each other, mm-hmm. and so then to also be like in recovery, I'm just interested about that experience. Like, do you think that's unique to being young people in AA? I feel and like living I, together, living together, yeah. it's <laughs> hard. Well, even even when we're not alcoholics, and even when we're not women in our twenties, it's just it's hard. And, and we lived in a house with fourteen women and four kids, mm-hmm. and so it was. <laughs> that sounds and that, so crazy. Coming from people who spent most of their lives hating other girls because of low self esteem, or you know, having to be around men to get what you needed in your addiction it was really really hard to acclimate to living with that many women (laughs) yeah yeah. definitely we all had to grow up a little bit to like get along um because I know I came in with like the mentality of a 13 year old girl um and now I'm like a 14 year old girl which is great um (laughs) but yeah we all like had to watch each other grow up and like help each other grow up and it's been a great experience like be able to stay sober through all that how did you guys learn how to be, like, good to each other mm. in that house? Trial and error, for sure. Um, there was a lot of, like, not being good to each other, to be honest. Um, what did that look like? I don't know. I mean, we're all, like, super young girls, and there's, I mean, there was some bitchiness, you know what I mean? And there was, like, gossip and all that kind of stuff, because, like, like I said before, we don't know how to live. Um, like, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know how to be, like, a friend to anybody. Um but it was trial and error, but, like, the thing about Austin was, like, we could sit down and talk about that stuff. We would sit down in house meetings. <laughs> or just in our rooms. Remember yeah. that time it came down, and you're, like, we both were, like, I feel like you hate me. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And I was, like, I, I said something mean because, like, I was super self-conscious and, like, self-absorbed. I was, like, I don't know if I trust you. And you cried, and I was, like, I'm a terrible person. <laughs> but, like, we just always ended up talking about it and crying about it. And, like, even though... Because, like, these people become your family, you know what I mean? You don't always like your family. You don't always agree with what they do. But, like, the baseline is that you love them. Um, And we would talk about it and, like, recognize at the end that we were family. And, like, I'm not going to even say that we all got along while we were living together. But, like, we held on that relationship as we left and, like, continued to grow and learn in our own recovery um, and become, like, these these women. You know what I mean? Not, like, these children, but, like, these women. Um, And that's been really hard as well, you know, because you're in this environment where you wake up every day, you know, you go into your friend's room and you do your makeup and you hang out and then you move out and life gets busy Mm -hmm. and you're all of a sudden, like, you have to make effort to maintain these relationships, you know? And Mm -hmm. uh, there was a period for me where I was like, fuck, I don't have any friends anymore. You know? Because it was just very, very different. And And it pushes you to to grow even more and, and reach out, you know, and, and we've been able to do that. If addiction is a disease of loneliness, then recovery is a cure of community. 
Living under one roof makes it a lot harder to keep secrets or get away with old behaviors. The tribe is there to hold you accountable and help you through the challenges of early recovery, which, in Sam's case, meant getting called out when the group was concerned about her. There was a period in my sorority, like right after me and that person broke up, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, where I just like stopped doing everything. I stopped taking care of outside issues and I just was miserable, you know, and I didn't really think anyone would notice. And one night I came home and they're like, we're having a house meeting about you, you know, and it wasn't like a negative thing, you know, they were like, what's going on? And like, what can we do to help you? And like, I don't know if, um, if they hadn't have done that, you know, if I'd still be sober because I was just sitting in it and sitting in it and, uh, and they helped me through it. You know, just because they cared enough to like be like, you're coming upstairs right now and we're talking about you. And I could have been like, F you. Like, no, I'm not. But instead, you know, I went up there and heard them out. And to have people care about you like that. I mean, most of us come from a, a lifestyle that you don't have any type of friend. You know, you have drug dealers and you have whoever you use with. But no one that's going to like stop their lives. And have yeah. an emergency meeting because they notice that you're isolating in your room or, or yeah. you know, not doing something that you normally do. And, and that's insane to me. Do you guys remember, like, having that moment of understanding of, oh, these women are not my enemy. In fact, they are, like, my allies. It was probably that meeting. For you. Because mm -hmm. everyone hated that boyfriend anyway. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and, you know, me and Madison were... I don't really know how our relationship was at that time, and Bree and I went through our shit, and we've already we've always been pretty cool. Always been okay, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know it didn't really matter because they all pulled together, you know, and and I think that's where it came from was like, and that was like the point when I actually joined the fellowship because you know I like hated the world and had patches all over my clothes, blue hair, fucking did thought I was just so different than everybody. She looks a lot different. You know? Yeah. 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 Um, snake bites. Oh my yeah. God. yeah, it was bad. And uh I would threaten to sew patches on Madison's clothes. Oh my god. <laughs> I but yeah, it was like that moment where I was like, okay, I can either like continue fighting or just like cease, you know, and it talks about that and actually make connections with women and reach out and uh, just do something different, you know, and that's, I think, where my whole perception changed, you know, and I allowed myself to just be a person among people instead of like watching it from the outside because really I was scared that if I wanted to be with them that... I would be rejected. I was too scared, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I acted like I hated them. And so once I just like gave that up and it was around that time, that's when things started to shift. Sam wasn't the only one who initially resisted her housemates' attempts to tear down her emotional barriers. Each of the women had their own character defect to overcome. For Sam, it was letting go of her cool girl persona. And for Melissa, it meant revisiting her behaviors around men. Melissa was on like a 18 month man band. <laughs> it was one month. It was awful. And I should have probably got kicked out on multiple occasions for like miserable conduct with men. Like I went into the interview of the house saying like, I have problems with men. I need accountability around this. And then whenever anyone would try to hold me accountable around 
my behavior, it was like, oh, well, you like, never mind. Um, I'm going to do whatever I want. And, um, there was a one instance where I was on this contract through the house that I wasn't allowed to be in men's Oxford houses. Oh, this is a good one. This is a good story. <laughs> and, um, I had like just learned how to use Snapchat. So I broke my contract. I was over at a men's Oxford house with a dude and another girl from the house. I was like, snapchatting basically posting proof of me being in this location on social media without even thinking about it um or like who could see it or and so I got back to the house meeting that same night and someone had said um so like where were you today I I lied you know um and they were like well we know that you were at such and such house and I was like no no I was not (laughs) that's a lie (laughs) I was not there and they were like, uh, are you sure? Because uh, we we know that you were there. I, tr- I kept continuing to lie about it until they were like, well, here's the proof. Like, this is the video that you posted yourself. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, I, I was there. I lied. Time I to get on there. Yeah. <laughs> it was a lot of things like that. For me, it was like, just like dishonesty. Secrets. Secrets. Secrets was huge. And like, especially when it came to like me hanging out with dudes, that's like been my huge problem that I've had in my whole recovery for the last three years. Melissa had done a lot of great work during her time at Sarandi Lane, but it was the foundation she built in the Autzen house that would help keep her sober. It took 15 months of me living there to like leave the house on good terms, which I don't still to this day know how that happened. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Uh, But also to like leave with the relationships that I left with and like can still maintain today. Did you have a sense of that when you guys were in the house that there was something special? Mm. That made oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Our house was magical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we did live Absolutely. in a very magical house. Yeah. So we would cry every meeting. The, the magic dripped out of the walls. and like Just our house, though. Just yeah. our house. <laughs> I mean, I, I had lived in other Oxford houses because um, I had, like, I had trouble, like, staying sober the first couple of times that I tried. Um, and, like, they weren't like the house that we lived in. I definitely think they all can be with, like, communication and stuff like that. But, like... It was just a different experience um, to like be in that house for sure. I think that's where I have so much gratitude for um, my Oxford experience was like, I didn't know what friends were when I got sober. You know, I got sober when I was 18 years old and I was just a junkie, you know, and like leaving that Oxford house, I had 10 different women that would come no matter what, you know, like whatever was happening in my life, they would drop whatever they were doing to at least come and like comfort me or like, you know, um, and that's, I think that's where I get so emotional too, is just that extreme gratitude for like knowing what friendship is and, and feeling like a part of something and connected to another human being. Cause there's like, like I said before, like all I knew how to do was get loaded. Like there's no connection with another human being out there. As I mentioned before, the Altson house was specifically a women and children's house. So in addition to building friendships and life skills, Melissa was also suddenly living with kids again. When I was living in the house with uh, four other kids there, I definitely felt some maternal instinct kick in. I at one point made the call asking about visitation with my son, I remember, and they had said, absolutely not. It's not gonna happen. Don't try again for another year. 
we don't want to hear from you. We don't want you to file or petition for anything. You're not welcome. With six months sober and three months at the Oxford House, Melissa decided to visit her mom in another part of the state. That's when something unexpected happened. I got a call from an unknown number, and it was Clatsop County Court saying, we have talked to your son's dad's family. They have told us that you've recently gone through a treatment program and have recently become sober. We are holding a court hearing for custody of your son today. You know, they said, well, we can't really explain, but if you can come up here, be here within the next hour and a half, you will more than likely get granted full custody. When I got that call, it was like, of course I'm going to go. I, I remember thinking about it in the car on the way to the hearing and um, just probably really just discrediting it. Even if they do grant me visitation, it'll be he'll be with foster family or, um, you know, but then also there's the part of me that's like, man, if I had been in any other part of the state that I would have been in on any other day, if I had been in Eugene, there's no way I would have made it. If I had even been at my mom's house rather than in Tillamook, we would have been half an hour late. That's just God working in my life. That was so spiritual being right where we were at that time, getting that call. We made it with two minutes to spare. Melissa made it to the courthouse, but she still didn't know why she'd been summoned in the first place. She'd been told repeatedly that she would never get custody of her son, so many times that by this point, she'd stopped trying. There was no sign of her son's father, but his family was there, visibly upset. When her ex was brought in wearing handcuffs, the full weight of the situation became clear. He was facing multiple charges, including domestic violence and child abuse. In the end, he wasn't convicted, but the judge was not about to let Thomas return to his care. Suddenly, the focus turned to Melissa. I got called upon by the judge, and he asked me very, probably like four questions. He asked, how long have you been sober? Do you have a roof over your head? Do you have a job? He didn't ask me, are you ready to be a parent? He didn't ask me, are you emotionally stable? Are you working the 12 steps? You know, the things that I probably would have asked myself if I had been this judge and um, just asked me, okay, can you feed this kid? Is he going to have a roof over his head? Uh, okay, he's yours. Granted me full custody and... We uh, met with the DHS caseworker and the CASA caseworker after the hearing to set up a return to home plan. What was the conversation about having another kid join the house? Or having having her son join the house. I mean, it was a it was no it was a no brainer. Yeah, it it happened in the matter of like two hours, going from thinking I wasn't gonna even have visitation for a matter of years to full custody. Um, and I I messaged the girls and like said I'm gonna I'm getting my son back and like there was never any question of like whether or not that was okay. It was like this is happening and like. At that point, I didn't know what to expect. I wasn't like, I need your guys' support or like, I'm really scared or like, what's gonna happen? It just was like, I'm bringing him back into this house where I'm like surrounded by women who like love and care about me. That particular house, you don't 
turn away mothers. Um, and especially in her case, you know, she had lived there for a while. And um, I think that's just the mentality that we had in our Oxford house in general was like we held each other up no matter what, you know, and we were like one big family. And, and sometimes that's not people's experience. Um, but that, that was our experience. And so when Melissa got her son back, no matter what happened, we were all just like, okay, like we're part of the herd. We're going to figure it out. You know, him coming into her custody and, you know, you can speak about what he was like when he first came and we all, I remember the house meeting where she came and it was like two weeks after she had gotten him and she just broke down and was like, I don't know how to do this, you know? And we surrounded her and like, that's the way it was, you know, we just like held each other up through experiences we did not know how to handle. Like when I got Thomas back, like he was completely nonverbal and completely non-potty trained and had been being abused by his biological dad after being completely abandoned by his drug addicted mother, like a year and a half prior to that at 11 months old. And so I get back this two and a half year old little boy who was just really fucking broken, really broken. And, um, and it showed in his behavior and like, uh, like I just remember that first week, um, he, I brought him home and he had a diaper rash and it doesn't sound that extreme, but it fucking was. It was really bad. It was really, yeah. really hard to the point where I had to have girls help me hold him down to be able to wipe his bottom. And he was screaming and it hurt him so bad. And um, that meeting that I had, and he said it was like two weeks after we brought him home. It was like, it was four days. It was exactly four days after I brought him home on a fucking Tuesday. I just had been like trying so hard to hold it together. And then uh, fucking just lost my mind. I, I, uh, I just cried and cried. I sobbed. I couldn't even stand up. I just remember being like, there was a living area and then there was kind of a dining room area. And I remember being in the dining room area, standing there, just like, I like blacked out emotionally, you know, and just had to get it all out. And then, um, and it didn't get easier from there. You know, it was hard. Melissa had been sober for just six months when life gave her a second chance to be a mother. But it was under heartbreaking, devastating circumstances. And it was sometimes more than she could bear. Alone, she might have failed. But she wasn't alone. The piece of gratitude that I'm grateful for the most is, like, we share this special bond. And, like, I can think of times when I have treated these three women deplorably, lied to their face, um took them for granted, like, um, put them in a position to like, ask them to take care of my kid when like, they maybe didn't have like the, the experience to do so. Um, when he would be having an episode or something and like, like they never turned me away, no matter like how fucked up I was to them or like, no matter what. Like, I can still sit here in this room with these ladies today and, like, feel emotional and grateful for, like, the bond that we have. Do you guys remember those moments? God when... damn it. <laughs> I know. Melissa. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember all the moments. Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas like to put 
that's Thomas's Melissa's son. He like put like pizza in the fishbowl and like <laughs> yeah. trying to kill garlic him. bread. Yeah, yeah. Poncho. Yeah. Poncho. Who is sadly no longer with us. Uh, oh yeah, we had a goldfish. So yeah, we had. Well, he, he wasn't was a goldfish. Beta. He was a beta. He lived yeah. two long years, and I, uh, you know, in our Oxford house. In the Oxford house, I brought him home to the. Uh, we got the Poncho <laughs> about <laughs> four days after I brought Thomas. Maybe it was a little longer, like two weeks after we brought Thomas home. And um, that fish went through a lot. <laughs> we would all feed him because everyone thought that no one was feeding him. <laughs> and Thomas would throw pieces of pizza in there. Salt. He put salt, salt. in there one time. He was time. a saltwater beta. <laughs> yeah. Clean that fish tank just, a lot. And he was. He was a lot, you know, because he had gone through a lot. And it took a lot of patience with him being there. Um but we did. We just loved him. Yeah. I think that's where, like, the saying, it takes a village, like, literally mm. comes from, Seriously. you know? Because it's like, I mean, it took a village. <laughs> it took it took all of us, you know? Like, like and when, I wouldn't have wanted it any other way for mm-hmm. Melissa either, you know? Like, I, I wouldn't have, have done it. There's, you know, like, who knows what would have happened if it was just her and Thomas going have, through I all of those trials, it. you know? Thomas would not be in my custody at all. This idea that she could not have succeeded in suddenly reclaiming her role as a mom without her Oxford family is something she expressed again and again in both our group and one-on-one interview. If I had not lived in the Oxford house at the time, I never would have stayed sober. And um, I never would have thought I could do it. And, And the thought crossed my mind several times of, you know, maybe he's better off with the foster family. And if it hadn't been for the women that I lived with in the Oxford house, that's where he would be. There's all kinds of moms that have gone through the same thing I did. I'm not unique in the fact that I have gotten my kids back and they have been through enough to damage them to a certain extent. When Melissa first got Thomas back, he was incredibly troubled. And she truly had no idea how to take care of him. The women at the Oxford house helped but she also enlisted a babysitter, Bethany, who became another pillar of support. Bethany had experience with kids in the system and was amazing at working with Thomas. I didn't know where to start. He couldn't even be with another babysitter besides Bethany because he was so out of control behaviorally. He was physical and aggressive and um, just a menace, really. Just a kind of jerk. Which, I mean, did you relate? I mean, it sort of sounds like the way that you were describing yourself when you first got to the Oxford house. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Yeah, I I saw a lot of myself and my son. We were both trying to learn how to live our lives again at the same time on totally different playing fields. We were angry and frustrated with, with where we'd been, and now we had to try to live differently and um, live better, which is so much harder than living like a piece of garbage. You know, we learned a lot from each other during that time, which was just that we just needed to be patient with each other. For Melissa and Thomas, progress was slow and victories were hard won. The first times we noticed we were getting through to him were definitely um, him making connections with the other girls in the house. He took two months to learn anyone's name. And still to this day, if my son knows your name, that means something special. And so when we noticed, he started learning the girls' names. 
and we would refer to them all as aunties. I'm very, very close with the women that I lived with in Oxford, and they are all my son's aunts, Aunt Tia, Aunt Sam, Aunt Cammie, Aunt Bree, Auntie Madison, and if he's graduating high school and he's still calling them auntie, that's not going to bother me at all. If everyone in that room assumes that I just have 13 sisters, that does not bother me at all. I guess the the change was just getting to the level where he was willing to trust us. You know, if it had just been me by myself, I think that would have been really scary and intimidating, but he kind of got to pick and choose. He kind of got to pick what was comfortable for him and like stick his toes in. And if that was okay, he would continue to kind of test the waters. He had a whole house full of support and I had a whole house full of support. And I think if it had been any different, we would not have seen the results that we saw in such a short amount of time. Since he didn't recognize you at first and you had spent so much time away from him, did it take both of you time to warm up to each other when he first came to live with you? It definitely did. There was a period of time where we just didn't trust each other. Um, and you you would expect that from him. How can he trust anyone? Every person he's ever attached himself to has either abandoned him or hurt him, damaged him, injured him, um, neglected him. I mean, it was to the point where uh, I couldn't even sleep through the whole night. I was just so scared that he was going to I don't know what I thought, maybe get up and run away or that I was going to do something wrong. And um, maybe that it wasn't that I didn't trust him, but I didn't trust myself and he didn't trust me. And so building that trust took a lot. It just took a lot of, uh, like I said, testing the waters, but all that work paid off. And uh, I can't talk about my kid without getting really emotional. He, he is five years old now. It took us uh, two years to potty train him and for him to potty train himself. And that was the hardest, so hard. Uh, it was just a struggle, but it's done, <laughs> thank God. And um, I mean, my son's in kindergarten now, which I was afraid that we were gonna have to hold him back until he was six. And so he's a very young kindergartner. His birthday's at the end of August. And so he, um, loves school and he's just the chattiest little Kathy he will talk and talk and talk your ear off and it's not just casual conversation anymore he's um, really picking up on science and he's really picking up on math and um, going from him being completely nonverbal for the first two or three months that he was back in my care to him talking to me for 15 minutes straight about sharks is crazy progress and uh that's just god working in my life there's no other better way to explain it that's just god's way of showing me that like don't regret what happened but you're in the right place now we have a serious bond today i mean it is like creepy twin stuff bond. I can know exactly what he's thinking and he knows exactly what I'm thinking. He's very in tune to my emotions, more in tune than I would care for him to be for a five-year-old to an adult. You know, he's like, uh, mom, I think you're kind of hangry right now. And, uh, or he'll tell me, have you had your cup of coffee yet today? And it's like, oh my gosh, Thomas. It's so, so funny. What Melissa went through would have challenged anyone, and the progress that she and her son made is miraculous. 
while there were many positive forces at work in their lives, the support in that house with that particular pack of sober women made all the difference. By this point in the group interview, we are on our second box of tissues. The love and gratitude in this room is palpable. When we first sat down, I felt kind of guilty about pulling these women away from the Asipa festivities, but it's clear that the act of remembering what they've been through together is still powerful. Time has passed, but they're still amazed by each other's progress. That's like one of the gifts, you know what I mean? Like that I forget about. Like, I know we're talking about Melissa a lot, but it's just like you, I mean, like, at least for me, like, you've, like, shown, like, the most growth. Just, like, watching you grow into, like, an adult, you know what I mean? With, like, a son that's, like, so smart, dude. Like, he's so smart. Do you guys all feel a little bit proud of the kid that he is? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, yeah. like, Melissa for becoming, like, a great mom, you know what I mean? Like, from, like, coming, like, for somebody who just, like, didn't know, like, what to do or, like, how to handle any of this, like, becoming, like, a great mom that can, like, take care of her son, like, and herself and her bills and, like, her life, you know? And, like, watching, like, Madison and, like, Sam, like, grow into these adults and, like, have careers and, like, all this stuff. Like, crazy. Yeah. Sam, um, what are you remembering? <laughs> I don't know. All of it. All of it. I love that little boy. I love him, too. Can I speak candidly? Yeah. Okay. When I when I first met Melissa, I was like, this girl is not a mom. There's no way. And when I found out that she had a kid, I was like, no way. Like, she doesn't look like a mom to me. She doesn't act like a mom to me. Which is true. That's so <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, like, watching all of this process, you know, like, we all just went out to dinner, actually, for Bree's two years. And watching the way that Melissa was with Thomas when he first came home. Um, and then, you know, we all just went out to dinner and we were all standing there because we didn't have anywhere to go <laughs> and there was too long of lines and we didn't have a reservation. And anyways, and like, she was just sitting there holding Thomas on her chest the whole time. And he's a, he's a big kid. He's not like a, a pound he's not a small kid. And she was just sitting there holding him while he was, he was cranky and he was tired and she just sat there and held him the whole time. And I was like, God, her arms must hurt. And I was just thinking about like how far we've come and how, how much that relationship has changed, you know, and where we're at today. And it's like, it's like day and night, you know, and that's like this, like, this is, this is it, like this program and everything, it, it changes who you are and for the better. What's it like being a young group of female friends that have gone through this experience together? I think it feels special. It feels so special. It feels like, I don't know, like I haven't thought about this actually mm -hmm. for a while until emotional. I'm like right here. <laughs> you know, cause like you, I lived in Oxford for a very long time. Mm. <laughs> and by the time I was, you know, ending my time there, I was pretty done. I had learned everything I needed to learn in Oxford. Um, I was just waiting for the right timing to be able to move out on my own. Sitting here, I mean, we've, we've all lived out of Oxford for a while and, and it's, it's interesting to like go back and play all those memories in my mind, you know, cause, um, I mean, there were horrible memories, you mm -hmm. know, there were times when we, I mean, we were like a family, you know, so we yelled at each other. We were not nice to each other sometimes, you know, but um, and, but then there's those moments where like, we'd all make it dinner together 
or like, you know, watching Melissa's son grow up Mm. and like being, you know, like that, like nest for him, you know, and, and just watching so many beautiful women like grow up. It's just, it's like beyond my comprehension. And I feel so lucky and so special to have had that experience. You forget that, you know, because I feel like a lot of us felt really over it by mm-hmm. the time we oh, had yeah. lived there yeah. for a long because new people are coming in and, and you see them acting in the way that you know you acted <laughs> when you first moved there, but you're just done, you know, and, and then you move out and you kind of forget and then you start talking about it like this and it's just, it is, it's yeah. just, I don't know, it's, Yeah. It's, yeah, I don't know. it's crazy. Like I think about it, like like you guys are saying, like I'm sitting here right now, and it's not something I think about my daily life. Like, man, I'm so grateful for all these people because, like, I'm super selfish and think about myself most of the time. Um, but like, I couldn't have a relationship with anybody. Like when I was out there getting loaded, um, I was like 20 when I came into Austin, and like I had like no idea how to like be a friend, and I didn't think about like five years from now, like who would I be able to call? You know what I mean? Like I didn't have any of that, and like knowing that like how no matter how busy, like, our lives get or, like, like, what it looks like. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm going to cry. Um, Like, I'm going to have these people, like, no matter what we've been through, like, hating each other, loving each other, breakups, makeups, like, all that kind of stuff. Um, Like, I have these women. Addiction is more than substance abuse. Addiction is a presence, a voice an unremitting source of bad ideas. Recovery works well when people get outside of themselves and build solid relationships with other people. These relationships help replace the old voice that fueled their addiction. For Melissa, life in a house filled with sober women was a mix of tough love, utter lack of privacy, and a bond so powerful, it held her life together when unexpected events threatened to break it apart. Her experience reflects what many in recovery have discovered. Stay in the center or fall off the edge. Like animals moving in a pack, the ones in the middle of the herd are least likely to get picked off. I feel like I got to meet you at that conference. First of all, your group of friends were like the most fun looking, beautiful group of women. (laughs) And you guys as a group just seemed so fun. So looking back at your fears of like what you were going to miss out on by being a mom and by being sober, how have you gotten that back in your life? Like how, how do you get to feel young? How do you get to feel like you get to have fun? My biggest fear was that I was going to lose my childhood. I didn't think, I, I don't know why I had this idea in my head that like, oh, once I'm older than 24, my my youth is over. And I just had such a shrewd picture of the world. You know, my world was was so small. Coming into AA, my world got bigger. My God got bigger. And um, with a big God, anything is possible. And with the group of friends that I have, which I'm so grateful for, we do have fun. We do a lot of fun stuff, you know, we're the, (laughs) we joke a lot that, you know, we do a lot of the same stuff that we used to do when we were drinking, but we just do it sober. We dance, we go out and dance, we have game nights and we go out to eat all the time. Definitely just being a young person in AA, I do feel like I found what I was looking for all along. That's my purpose. I always knew my purpose that's somewhere along the lines. I think I knew my purpose was to like be a part of something 
where I felt young and could uh, be a, a part of a group, you know, make connections with people. And I assumed that was going to be through the lens of alcohol or drugs. And it, it wasn't. So what do you think is in the future for your son? Do you have dreams for him? I do have dreams for my son. I could be biased. I think all moms are. I just think he's so smart. He's so smart. And, um, you know, and I think of my mom having dreams for me and uh, what that must have felt like to know that I was in a place that was so dark uh, and so far away from like anything that she had ever expected of me and that I had ever expected of myself. And I just feel like if my son were to ever find himself in that place that I, that's the last thing I would ever want, but I'm prepared to handle it after what I've been through. Ideally, my son is going to be this very successful man. And by success, I don't mean money. I mean, doing something he loves with the people he loves in his life. Um, you know, but that's not always what's in God's plan. And really, it's, I would just be prepared for whatever. Melissa was essentially the first person we met when planning our Asipa series. And we really couldn't have asked for a better ambassador. It was her first conference, so we got to see it fresh through her eyes. And she introduced us to her friends. I tell you what, sitting in that room of women, reliving and sharing the stories of how they saved each other's lives, was one of the highlights of this whole experience. We hear a lot about fellowship and recovery friendships, but it is special to witness it in person. The thing about YPA that I gleaned from my limited experience is that there's no guarantee that getting sober young will necessarily make you immune to relapse or ensure sobriety forever, but it does provide a safety net and a network of cool people to do cool things with. When they are in trouble, they have someone to call. And when they are in sobriety, they have fun. Voices of Recovery was created by Monique and Jackie Danziger and is produced by Serenity Lane Drug and Alcohol Treatment Centers. Writing and production assistance by Monique Danziger. James Tyson is our production coordinator and script supervisor. Our show is edited by me, Jackie Danziger. Our theme and much of the music in this episode was composed by Sammy Gallo, with additional tracks by George Polly. Thank you, as always, to everyone at Serenity Lane who helps make the show possible. A special thanks to Bill Ward and Lane Frambees for their help connecting us with some of the alumni featured this season. Like us on Facebook and Instagram for teasers and episode extras. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're currently listening so that you can get new episodes every Tuesday in your feed. If you want to support our work or help others find the show, please take a minute to rate and review us. There's a link for that in the show notes. We'll see you next week for more stories of rock bottoms, moments of clarity, and life after addiction.